Welcome to The Lead, a podcast about how to get ahead in the news industry from the people who did. I'm Kira Posey. Today, I'm speaking with Ken Foskett. Ken Foskett recently retired from his role as a senior editor for investigations at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, where he led a team of investigative and data journalists who watchdogged state and local government. He currently manages the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's year-round internship program for young journalists. He is also the author of Judging Thomas, The Life and Times of Clarence Thomas, a biography on the Supreme Court Justice. Today, Ken and I talk about the challenges that came while he was writing his profile and eventual biography of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, how he led the team that investigated open records violations in the city of Atlanta, and his advice for aspiring journalists. But first, here's a word from our sponsor. This episode is produced by the Cox Institute for Journalism, Innovation, Management, and Leadership at the University of Georgia's Grady College. To learn more, go to grady.uga.edu slash Cox Institute. Now, here's the lead. And I'm here with Ken Foskett. Ken, thank you so much for joining today's episode. How are you? I'm great, Kira. I'm at UGA. It's a delight to be on this campus. Uh, lectured to a class this morning, met with a bunch of students, and feels good. And I'm so excited to talk to you today. You know, you've had a vast and storied career, so I'm just going to go ahead and get right into the first question. Have there been any particularly shocking or maybe even challenging moments during the reporting process in your career, and how did they change the way that you did your job? So, you know, every story has its own challenges, but if I had to pick one challenge, uh, I, I wrote a three-part profile of Justice Clarence Thomas on the Supreme Court, and I later wrote a book about him. And, of course, when I started that reporting, I wanted to interview him. And uh, that turned out to be an enormous, enormous challenge, but it did teach me a lot about how to get to unreachable people. Um, you know, the Supreme Court, first of all, is the most independent body that we have in our government. Uh, members of the Supreme Court do not have to talk to anybody that they don't want to. And I happen to pick the justice, the one justice, who is the most reticent and has historically been the most reticent about speaking to the media. He obviously went through a, a very, very public and uh, in many ways uh, humiliating uh, confirmation process. And he didn't like the media and didn't want to talk to the media. Um, I uh, The first thing I tried uh, when I was seeking to interview him, and this was for the, the articles, was to send him a letter and I knew that he had gone to Yale Law School. I had gone to Yale as an undergraduate, so I thought maybe the, you know, the connection to Yale would, um, would be helpful. So I made note of that in my letter. Um, I got a one-sentence letter in response. It said, Dear Mr. Foskett, I do not do interviews. Thank you very much. I later learned that he hated Yale University. Um, that he had a thing about Ivy League graduates in particular, that all of the Supreme Court clerks that he hired over the years, none of them came from Ivy League schools. So what I had thought might be 
something that would make him feel comfortable with me was, in fact, probably something that did the opposite. Mm -hmm. uh, anyway, so I kept going on it, and I followed him around, um, and I ended up writing, spent six months uh, writing three articles, and he did not speak to me in an interview for, for any of it. Then when I wrote, a, wrote the book, um, I again reached out to him, and this time I, I mean, I asked for some time to talk with him, but I made it very clear that whether he talked to me or not, I was going to write the book. And so I um, continued on in my reporting. One of the pieces that I really wanted to get to the bottom of or understand was his early background and his childhood and some of his ancestry. Um, so Clarence Thomas was descended from enslaved people. Uh, he did not know much about that history or the history about, of his grandfather. And I had done a lot of reporting on that. And he was very interested in knowing that. At a certain point, I wrote to him and said that I'd found some of these things out, some other things about his grandfather, who he was very close to, didn't know anything about. And um, within a week, my phone rang, and he was on the other line um, wanting to talk to me and learn more about what I had found out. The long and short of it is that that started um, a dialogue that ultimately led to uh, interviews. And um, uh, the thing, getting back to what I learned from that one, is that um, people will agree to interview you if you give them a reason. And the reason that I gave Clarence Thomas is that I knew things he didn't know and he wanted to know them. Um, and then the other thing I learned is, particularly with powerful people like that, is it's important to start on the outside and work your way in. So you start, you know, the furthest away, you know, so for my case, starting with people who knew him as a kid and lost touch with them, and then, you know, you begin to get closer and closer and closer to the people who know him currently, and then, and then you're talking to people who are able to talk to him and say, well, you know, I talked to this guy, and he asked pretty straightforward questions and um, didn't think anything was, you know, wrong with it. And I think in the end that may have given him some, um, you know, some uh, idea that I, you know, did not have a particular agenda other than to tell his story uh, as honestly and accurately as I could. Yeah. Um, that's interesting that he was so hesitant at the beginning and the onset to talk to pe speak with media. And I know that he is famous, you know, for, for that, for the hesitancy. Like, what do you think, and did he ever, in your conversations with him, did he ever let on to why he might have been hesitant to speak to the media? Was it just a larger distrust? He had various explanations for it. The people around him had various uh, explanations, and they weren't all the same. Um, uh, Justice Thomas's explanation at the time was that oral arguments are intended for the 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 litigants, the the people who are appearing before the court, and um, essentially what he was saying is that a lot of the questioning that happens is grandstanding. Um, he also, being a reticent person, um, didn't like the idea that questions that he would ask would be analyzed for his thinking or meaning of like, so how is he going to vote? You know, he, because he asked this question, he's probably leaning this way or that way. He um, he likes to keep 
everything very, very close uh, to the vest. And so I think that was um, a part of it. Um, you know, he had lots of people at the time that I wrote the book telling him that he should ask more questions, he should be more vocal, because if he didn't, people think he was going to be, he was stupid. And he's not a stupid man at all. He's a very, very bright man. And um, so, but he's also a very stubborn man. And, uh, you know, that's been consistent um, throughout his, his life. And, you know, if you want Clarence Thomas to do something, um, the worst thing you can do is to tell him to do it because he'll probably do the opposite. Definitely. Um, thank you. I think that, that that work is so interesting. I also want to get to um, your work as an investigative editor at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution um, and some of the stories that you've produced and, and, and edited. Um, but specifically, there's one investigation that I want to ask you about. Um, so at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, uh, you led a, a, a report along with Channel 2 Action News that covered the city of Atlanta's open records violations. It specifically looked at Atlanta Mayor Kasim Reed's administration and how his administration and specifically his press secretary uh, violated the Georgia Open Records Act. This reporting led to the first ever criminal investigation, as you know, of open records violations in Georgia. So can you tell me and our listeners about that story? Like, when did your team first realize that was happening and what challenges were present? So I would say throughout Kasim Reed's administration, um, it, records requests uh, were very challenging. They were often long delays, uh, partially fulfilled, but the real scrutiny on, on Kasim Reed and his administration came in early 2017 when it was revealed through uh, some criminal complaints that two Atlanta contractors had allegedly paid bribes to city officials in order to win city business. It was a federal investigation. It was obviously very big, high profile. And at the AJC and at Channel News, Channel 2 News, the investigative teams there, which I was a part of, wanted to get to the bottom of that, find out what was going on. So the, we uh, you know, filed a lot of open records requests related to the investigation, related to the contractors, uh, to find out more. And those requests really, really got stymied, and um, there. And it was. And it seemed. Um, it seemed wrong for one reason because um, a lot of most of, in fact, everything that we were asking for, the city had already assembled, or was assembling for federal prosecutors because they had the documents had been subpoenaed. So, the idea that they they couldn't turn them over to us uh, seemed seemed wrong. Um, so, uh, it, it ended up, uh, being, you know, really a year of, of fighting with the administration. There were, you know, threats of, of, um, you know, action with the, the, uh, the attorney general. There's a process under the Open Records Act, uh, where the attorney general can mediate an open records uh, dispute. We ultimately went to that process because we were not getting, uh, requests filled in the way fulfilled in the way that uh, we thought was right. In the end, a lot of the material that we were asking for was not released until Kasim Reed left office. And uh, under the uh, Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms administration, um, requests that had been held by the Reed administration um, were turned over. And lo and behold, they revealed a lot of 
pretty questionable stuff. There was uh, the mayor and uh, other senior officials using their city credit cards, uh, taxpayer credit cards for personal travel, for personal um, items, meals, hotels, um, things of, of, of that nature. Um, there was a, um, uh, uh, there were uh, tens of thousands of dollars in bonuses that were awarded to city employees, which ultimately turned out to be illegal, that were, should not have been released. These were, this was information that we didn't know about. There was a secret settlement with a very senior airport official that came to light only because we were able to get these, these records. Um, and in the midst of all of this, uh, Channel 2 received um, some leaked text messages from the, um, between the uh, Mayor Kasim Reed's press secretary, the press secretary at the time, and a, an official in the Water Department. And it dealt with a request that Channel 2 had made for water billing records um, that the city kept, which were public records. And specifically, they were interested in the water billing records for the mayor, for his brother, and for members of the city council, because they had a tip that those accounts were delinquent and very many, many months behind, and they wanted the records to see you know, if that was in fact true. And so the text messages that um, Channel 2 obtained and that they, they aired and that we published um, it included a back and forth between a water department official and the, uh, the press secretary, wherein first it was acknowledged that the records were damaging. They did in fact show that the mayor and his brother and others were tens of thousands of dollars behind in their, their water bills, that there were shut off notices that had never been uh, fulfilled, and that it was, um, would be a, uh, an embarrassing political situation for the mayor. Well, the press secretary's response was to tell the water official to delay the release of the records, um, to if, there, if she was, you know, when they provided, if ever, to put them in the most confusing format possible. Uh, and all of that appeared to indicate a pretty willful and intentional effort to frustrate the Open Records Act, which says if you have records and they're available, you should make them available. So in the end, um, the press secretary was charged under the Open Records Act uh, for a misdemeanor criminal violation, and she was convicted of that. Um, and um, it was, you know, it was a good lesson in a lot of fronts. Uh, I think, you know, one of the things I, I always tell you know, any old reporters, particularly young ones, is, you know, lead with your nice, you know, don't lead with being a jerk. Um, give people the benefit of the doubt. Um, you know, a lot of people who are fulfilling open records requests have, you know, jobs and they're, you know, it's, they're overloaded and, you know, apply pressure, but be gentle. But there are times when you have to really, really push hard and you have to realize that maybe, it's not a question of being overworked, but it is actually a question of an, you know, a deliberate effort to keep you from information that you and the public are entitled to. And so that's one thing is sometimes you have to push. And the other thing is, you know, there are laws that protect the public and the media to get records. And it's important to use them. 
and to push officials and agencies to uh, live by them and to follow them. And you know, we did that with with the city of Atlanta ultimately by going the you know the extra step to go to the attorney general and say this is intolerable and you need to do something and. Uh, you know, it worked. It it, uh, it it did pry loose a lot of the records that had been held up and also led to some changes uh, at the city of Atlanta in terms of how they handled public records requests. Wow. It's, I don't know. I went, that, that story is, to me, mind-boggling. And at the same time, like, they're, they're, the administration's wanting to hide some of this information is does not seem shocking because there were some, like you said, legal and secretive things that were going on in the administration. Um, it's crazy. I, I want to know, like, did that teach you, besides what we've already talked about, like, did that story and the outcome of that story teach you anything new about media transparency or tell you anything about the importance of transparency? Well, absolutely. I mean, the, the, you know, the thing that you're always, I think, trying to do, particularly in with respect to government reporting, is what's going on behind the curtain? What is the, what are the motivations? What are the ba the deals that are going on in the background? Um, you know, of course, people in public office, they want to tell you the positive story, and they don't want to tell you the, you know, the messy story that might be behind it, and um, as it turned out in, in this instance, in the Reid administration, there were there was a lot of a lot of mess there that wasn't being disclosed to the public. And you know, in the end, it I think it it um, you know ultimately it portrayed Kasim Reid and his accomplishments in a very very different light and a. I mean, I would argue a much more balanced light. I mean, Kasim Reed was did a lot of good things for the city of Atlanta uh, in his during his administration. No question about that. There were a lot of financial problems that he took care of early on. Um, but he also ran the administration um, in ways that were probably not very democratic <laughs> and uh, heavy-handed. And um, and I think. Uh, the public and voters had a right to know about all of that. And uh, and I think that's a lot of what the reporting accomplished. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, thank you so much. I also want to ask you about, you know, what you think journalists, we talked about this a little bit, just the nature of that reporting, um, journalists' responsibility to hold public officials accountable. Do you think that's a role that journalists should have and how should that manifest itself? I, I mean, I think it is, the, you know, one of the fundamental roles for for journalists today, particularly, you know, in the environment that we're, that we're in where you need independent people, and journalists I'm referring to, to come in and 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 hold officials accountable and to get behind the curtain and to to publish uh, you know stuff that they don't know and that's the only way that you know in the end you know that people people keep on their toes or stay on their toes if if they know that people are watching and and then that's that's a very important role that the media plays is to to watch and and to call out when uh, the rules get broken uh, and and things don't happen the way they're supposed to. Right, yeah, thank you. Um, I also wanna ask you about your work with students and particularly like 
what characteristics you see in the journalists, the young journalists that you have worked with and your leadership at, at the AJC's internship program, and also what characteristics you think are essential for young journalists who are entering the field today. In my mind, that's a, it's a there's a very, very positive story to tell there because, uh, you know, no surprise to anyone, but the media has been in tremendous uh, difficulty the last, you know, it's been over a decade now where... You know, the finances have been terrible. There have been a lot of uh, contractions in the industry. Uh, fewer, fewer journalists and more challenging uh, environment for, for, you know, to be a journalist. But I see no shortage of young people who want to get into journalism, come into it with the same passion and determination to do right by the public that, you know, has been a hallmark of, of journalism from, you know, and journalists from the beginning. And so that to me has been very, very encouraging that there are still many, many young, bright people who want to do this work and want to do it for the right, right reasons. Um, so that's good. Um, you know, there's, I think a lot, um, you know, a lot is required of journalists um, uh, today. Um, you, I think even more than ever, you know, you've got to have a, a pretty tough skin uh, in this business because the political environment we're in where you're as likely as anybody else to be targeted for, you know, uh, called out or trolled or uh, name called or, or, or whatever. I, um, I feel like there was a lot less of that when I was a younger reporter, so reporters coming into today are, um, are dealing with, a, um, um, in many ways, a more hostile environment. And I think um, that requires maybe more personal toughness in a, in a job that already and has always required a lot of, a, a lot of personal toughness. Um, but, you know, you have to, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a job that, that really demands almost everything of you, you know, you have to be, you have to be quick on your feet, you have to be um, good at, uh, at, at collecting lots of information and synthesizing it and distilling it in a way that will make sense to somebody who doesn't know anything uh, about, about the topic. Um, you know, you have to be good with people because it is a people business and, um, you know, know how to um, relate to them, to empathize with them, to, you know, and, and able to, uh, so you're able to, to ask good questions and get good answers uh, back. Um, so there's probably more, there's probably, I mean, there is a lot more, but I'll stop. Yeah. <laughs> um, on that note, and this is my last question for yeah. you, um, what do you tell young journalists who are looking to get into the field today, and what is your advice to them? So I, I, I think, you know, first of all, journalism is, a, is something that you learn by doing. So well, the first thing is you've got to do it as much as you can, and you've got to put yourself in, um, in, in situations where you can practice as much as you can. So if you're here at the University of Georgia you know, working at the Red and Black or the Flagpole, or maybe you can get an internship at the Athens Banner, Banner Herald or some other kind of 
uh, internship. You want to be um, you want to be able to do the work um, and and ideally a variety. So you've got you're covering lots of different things. Uh, every every story will teach you something new about about reporting or about records. Uh, you know you deal a lot with records as as a journalist, and so you need to be comfortable with uh, records. You need to be comfortable with data. Um, so um, I, I also encourage, um, particularly young journalists, to think small rather than big. I know, you know, Washington may be a really sexy place to want to go and work and write, but there are tremendous needs all around the country, and I think it's better to start someplace smaller where you can build up your uh, your experience and skills, which will then help you get to um, you know a bigger a bigger role and a bigger assignment because the work does require an enormous amount of confidence. And the only way you get confidence is by doing it and doing it well and being successful and then being say saying to yourself, okay, I'm ready to take on. A, you know, a little bit more. I mean, I when I started out, there was no way that I could have conceived of writing an 18,000-word profile of a Supreme Court justice, much, much less writing, a, you know, a book about one. But everything that I had done, you know, prior to that prepared me and got me ready to take on a really, really big challenge like that. Yeah. Thank you so much for that advice. And um, yeah, I don't know, it's so cool to hear stories from your career. So thank you so much for your advice and for sitting down with me and for sharing your stories of your career with me and then of course our listeners. I know that they and I will be able to really benefit from, from of course, your advice and, and your insights. So thank you again, Ken, for joining. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks again to Ken Foskett for joining us on this episode. I'm your host, Kira Posey. Our producer is Dr. Keith Herndon, the executive director of the Cox Institute. To keep up with the lead and hear more from media leaders, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and be sure to follow us on Twitter. We're at The Lead Podcast. See you next time.